Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Tudor Opria, who is Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences and Chemistry and Chemical Biology and Division of Translational Informatics at the University of New Mexico. His current research is in the Department of uh, Validated Artificial Intelligence Models for Target Selection and Drug Discovery by Combining Numerical and Text Mind Information Model Human via Knowledge Graphs. Welcome, Tudor. Thank you, Jill, for giving me this opportunity to introduce uh, people to the exciting work that we've been doing. Great, great. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your recent papers entitled Exploring the Dark Genome, Implications for Precision Medicine, in which you say the increase in the number of both patients and healthcare practitioners who grew up using the internet and computers, so-called digital natives, it's likely to impact the practice of precision medicine and requires novel platforms for data integration and mining, as well as contextualized information retrieval. Now, we have seen interest in the use of artificial intelligence in, in healthcare increase over the last decade. And uh, increasingly, there are uh, applications uh, that work on EMR data and other types of data both uh, structured and unstructured uh, in the healthcare provision side. Uh, on the pharmaceutical side, um, I don't know, uh, maybe you can tell me, uh, my experience has been that they're a little behind in the application of these technologies. Uh, and so you want to talk a bit about the paper and, and uh, what, uh, what you're doing in this area? Absolutely, Jill. Uh, thank you for uh, mentioning uh, parts of my work. So essentially, I start with the observation that uh, digital natives, uh, which I typically define people who were born during the age of internet, and some of them, of course, end up being uh, healthcare practitioners, the other ones uh, end up as patients, or at some point, all of us will end up as mm -hmm. patients. 
so what's happening is that uh, there is a lot of information that's uh, pretty much assaulting us across multiple channels, uh, not just television, uh, at least if you're in the United States uh, and you watch TV, almost every five to 10 minutes, there is a commercial that discusses some novel drug and it's uh, how it would possibly help you if you suffer from a so-and-so disease. So that's one channel of communication. Of course, everybody uh, goes to social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, other platforms, and uh, Reddit. And, and pretty much we have a lot of information that's coming our yeah. way. So what I try to address in this paper is if we were to try to develop tools that target the digital natives, how would we try to make those tools look like? And of course, I'm in particular interested in uh, ways to provide information that is distilled primarily addressing the biomedical scientist, but also the clinician and uh, hopefully the patient as well. And in doing so, we have developed this uh, platform, uh, which is available uh, at the NIH.gov website. It's called Pharos, and that's spelled with a PH. So it's pharos.nih.gov. And that platform is a data aggregator that includes information about proteins, diseases, and uh, ligands. And by ligands, I mean chemicals that also includes drugs. So the way that what we discuss in this paper is if I were to find a way to quantify data availability and uh, try to take information across all, all these channels uh, that, that provide information related to proteins, I would probably discover that there are some proteins that are really well studied, but there are also some proteins that are understudied. And we have proposed a knowledge-based classification system for proteins. We divide them in four categories. And uh, the take-home message of this is that um, a small fraction of the human proteome, uh, about 600 proteins out of 20,000, are what we would consider uh, drug targets. In other words, we know with reasonable degree of certainty that's how drugs work. Also, at the same time, about one-third of the human proteome, about 6,500 such proteins are what we call T-dark. And those are proteins that are understudied. So in this paper uh, that uh, we are discussing, I'm trying to look at uh, the quantification of uh, information for dark versus, uh, say, uh, uh, well-studied mode of action drug targets, and I ask the question, if I were not to rely on biomedical literature, are there any information channels that could provide me enough information to prioritize them for biomedical research? Well, yeah, that's, that's so interesting, Tudor. So uh, 20,000 proteins or so, 600 of them are commonly used. Uh, and underneath that, there's 500 uh, that could provide fairly high utility. And, and so, and so if I understand this correctly, Tudor, are you saying the, the bio, uh, biopharmaceutical industry uh, is really focused on the 600? Uh, 
Jill, that's a good question. I wouldn't say that. Um, to some extent, of course, it is safe to say that uh, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies uh, follow what's known in the industry as the Me Too model. And the Me Too model is essentially as soon as uh, somebody comes up with a drug on the market, then other companies will rush with uh, similar products uh, to compete with the previously approved drug. And that per se is not a bad thing. Uh, if you think that uh, until recently the best selling drug in the world was uh, Lipitor, uh, Lipitor was the seventh drug on, of its kind to come to the market. Yeah. Yeah, so so it takes a lot of tinkering. It takes a lot of tinkering, a lot of improvement to create what would be considered uh, the best in class drug. So to that extent, it is difficult for the pharmaceutical companies to come up with uh, new drug targets. And that's really the difficulty here. It's out of 600 proteins, the reason we only seen an increase of about 10%. So in 2013, when I did first this analysis, we had about 600 proteins. Now we're about uh, 660, uh, including drugs that were approved in 2019. And what that means is we had a roughly a 10% increase in the number of drug targets over eight years. Uh, to my mind that's a rather conservative approach because it's so difficult to get regulatory approval and put new drugs on the market right so so obviously these companies uh have you know sort of a risk management uh process and uh the economics could be quite different uh when you go for first in class type uh, type compounds and targets so is your attempt here is to is to make that 6,500 or so, what you call the dark genome um, proteins, um, but they bring them to the fore, so to speak, uh, by combining data from various avenues? Yes, correct. So my, my hope is to draw attention to the untapped potential of the understudied proteins and uh, sort of bypass the process by which a protein is studied, say, 10, 15, 20 years before somebody considers it a valid target for drug discovery. And in that sense, I look at uh, data that comes from genome-wide association studies. So GWAS is uh, a channel of data. Another channel is the International Mouse Phenotype Consortium. And then a, a third channel that we're looking at is a combination of all these uh, uh, information channels with uh, the prioritization scheme that, that I mentioned, uh, which divides them into the four categories. Yeah, so, so this database that you mentioned, Tudor, uh, Pharos, is that what it's called? Correct. Uh, what, so how does that data look like? How is it organized? Just very, very um, <laughs> at the very highest level. So, um, Pharos uh, is the platform uh, where the data is accessible and um, we've actually just published a paper that I also sent you a link about, which is called TCRD and Pharos 2021, uh, mining the human protein for disease biology. So with your permission, I'm going to switch yeah. in, in this context to that paper. Uh, so essentially, uh, that database, um, TCRD, uh, 
catalogs information uh, from about uh, 75 different individual sources. And it looks at uh, information from uh, a number of uh, sources or channels, for example, related to protein expression data. So uh, we have essentially um, major categories of data, uh, for example, expression data. Uh, another type of category is what we call protein-protein interaction data. And uh, the newest addition to that uh, in 2020 was to include uh, virus interaction proteins. So the, there is a atlas that was developed at Columbia University, which is called P-Hipster. Mm -hmm. Uh, the first author of that paper was uh, Gorka Lasso, but uh, it was work done in the lab of Barry Honig. Yeah. And essentially, P-Hipster looks at uh, the interaction between viruses and human proteins, or viral proteins and human proteins. And in the context of the current pandemic, we thought it relevant to add that uh, information channel. Okay. So, so it's a it's a large amount of very interesting data. So, are you pre-processing that data to some level, applying some AI techniques uh, for on? We certainly pre-process the information. We try to normalize it, and then we try to store it in what uh, is commonly called machine learning ready format. And so we, we try to standardize it, observing certain ontologies. So we look at all this uh, small molecule data, protein data, disease information, genomic, phenotypic, and ontologies. But I'd say the only part where we currently use uh, uh, some artificial intelligence is when we do text mining. Yeah. Uh, because text mining, and that's work developed by in the lab of Lars Jensen in... Uh, uh, at the Novo Nordisk Foundation Center for Protein Research in Denmark. Mm. And so Lars uses uh, some machine learning tools not only to process uh, uh, PubMed abstracts, which is a, a lot of text mining uh, technologies do that, but he also processes the full text publications available in PubMed Central. And he uses uh, BioBert, which is a two-way uh, language, uh, bidirectional language encoder. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that he's uh, doing um, is using what's called named entity recognition. So if you have an entity called a disease and another entity called a protein or a gene, then the question is, can you establish associations between proteins slash genes and diseases or phenotypes, as it were? And that's where we use uh, some sort of uh, artificial intelligence precursor or machine learning, I would say. Mm. Are the users typically uh, from an academic institution or uh, pharmaceuticals and biotechnology companies are using it as well? We offer the database for full download. So uh, because of, um, I would say confidentiality issues, what most likely is happening with respect to biotech and pharma industry is that they uh, download the complete dump of the database and there is also a dockerized version of Pharos. So they essentially can install uh, behind their own firewall a version of Pharos complete with everything that we have. So Pharos, the front end of the system, uses GraphQL and quite modern query systems yeah. 
to enable the users to rapidly access uh, information. As I mentioned, 75 different uh, sources of information that come together into a single web page. Yeah. And it's using, it's using a dynamic query system. So for example, if you have a protein that's very poorly studied, uh, it will not have uh, widgets or empty spaces where uh, whatever data is missing, it would just say, I don't know, uh, drugs, and there will be no drug available. So it will simply not show you that tab, which, which has the drug part. It will only show that for proteins where drugs are available. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, one issue with that, though, is that uh, since there is no um, sort of two-way communication, if the, if the industry, uh, if the companies are just downloading the data and then use it uh, privately, they're not really sharing any information back, right? And so this has always been an issue. Uh, and so is there any attempt to, um, to, to, try, to try to make this more, uh, more generally available from a two-way communication perspective? Obviously, there are IP issues and privacy issues. But uh, do you do you think NIH or other agencies might uh, might do that? Jill, I absolutely like your idea of the two-way communication in this particular aspect. Uh, of course, intellectual property becomes an issue, so it's really a question of uh, do companies uh, are they in the position where they'd be willing to share? And obviously, the most uh, clear way to communicate that type of information is to place it in a publication where we just download the supplementary material. If they were to say be interested in contacting us directly, uh, we have that information available. So in the FAQ section of Pharos, we pretty much say here are ways for you to contact us. Uh, and if they if somehow somebody says we have this really large set of data we would like to contribute to Faros, we would definitely consider uh, including that information. Okay. I want to touch on one other, um, this is a different thing, right? So Drug Central 2021 supports drug discovery and repositioning. And that's another, another resource, drugcentral.org. Uh, correct. So part of the reason we catalog proteins in across uh, in, into four different bins is that uh, the most studied ones that uh, one would consider pretty much the textbooks of uh, biochemistry and pharmacology are based on mm. are essentially the drug targets. Yeah. But the only way to understand drug targets is to map drugs onto their mode of action targets. So we started that process uh, about seven, 10 years ago, and we accumulated this database that we currently call Drug Central. And essentially Drug Central, which is also available just like uh, Pharos uh, for a complete uh, database dump. And uh, there are ways to get a Dockerized version. So if anyone is not comfortable using the system as is, they can install their own version uh, in-house. Yeah. Uh, essentially, what we do is we catalog uh, information about their chemical structures and uh, makeup, so pretty much what's in the pill and uh, with information about the dosage. And this is what's called active pharmaceutical ingredients. Mm -hmm. 
Sadly, we do not catalog the inactive pharmaceutical ingredients. That would be a subject of uh, perhaps future work. But then we look at uh, all these drugs and then we map them to drug targets. We also map them to diseases. And when I say diseases, I'm talking about drug indications, contraindications and off-label medical uses. More importantly, and I think we are the first to offer this in the public domain, we catalog side effects by sex. So uh, we separately index information for men and women with respect to the drugs. We take that data from a, an FDA system called Federal Adverse Events Reporting System, also known as FIRES. Mm. So we process that information. And uh, of course, we have additional data available uh, about drugs. Okay, okay. Um, Tudor, we'll take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about um, drug repurposing, uh, some, some AI uh, techniques, um, especially in the context of what we're dealing with today, uh, the, the COVID-19 uh, problem. Okay. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, Tudor, we were uh, talking about uh, data coming from various avenues um, that could put a, a better focus on the large number of proteins um, in the human system that could be utilized uh, from a drug targeting perspective. And you've been collecting and organizing this data. There is one from NIH uh, called Pharos uh, that is publicly available. There is also uh, drugcentral.org um, that has been organizing existing drugs. Um, uh, again, uh, the properties and the, and the effects, um, again, for use in uh, perhaps in machine learning and other, other methodologies. And uh, more recently, you were looking at some of this from a COVID-19 perspective. So you have a paper that came out. It's entitled Virtual and In Vitro Antiviral Screening uh, Review uh, sorry, antiviral uh, screening revive therapeutic drugs for COVID-19. And uh, you are looking at existing drugs, right? Thinking about repurposing uh, those drugs like hydroxychloroquine. Uh, that's right, Jill. So thank you for having me back. Um, so in addition to these um, NIH-funded projects um, through the Illuminating the Drug World Genome, which include the Pharos and the Drug Central, we were considering how to best put to use these technologies in the context of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And in that sense, we started with uh, hydroxychloroquine, and then we asked the question, if we were to start with hydroxychloroquine as a potential um, antiviral, can we find an antiviral that is better then hydroxychloroquine then potentially has fewer side effects. Mm. 
So that was the subject of this paper that you mentioned. Uh, I should perhaps introduce the, the listeners to the concept of virtual screening first. Yeah, yeah. So the, the idea behind virtual screening is that uh, you do a in silico study. So this is purely computational. Yeah. And there are two ways to do this called ligand-based virtual screen, and the other one is structured-based virtual screen. And in the first case, the ligand-based, um, let's say uh, you, what you're looking for is a car. And uh, you pretty much have a model of a car, say a Volvo SUV, the XC90. And then uh, you are asking the question, there are all these thousands of other cars out there uh, some of them will, of course, be coupes, some of them will be pickup trucks, etc. But the question will be, if I have this template, which is the XC90, which other car looks most likely uh, to be similar to uh, the XC90? And, and of course, there are criteria that we define, like uh, it has to have four wheels, it has to have an engine, a windshield, you know, all these other things that come as intrinsic properties. These are properties that we can compute for drugs. They relate to the shape of the drug, the electrostatics, the charges, the all sorts of properties that we can calculate. So that is what we call ligand-based virtual screening. The other one is structure-based virtual screen. So the drugs, the way they work inside the body is that they interact with our proteins or what other people would call receptors. And for the drug to bind to a receptor, it basically has to fit inside a binding site or a cavity. Yeah. So think of it as a car going into the garage. So what you have to find is a appropriate garage for your car. If the garage is too large, like a hangar for the, I don't know, uh, Hercules C-130, then obviously that's not a very good fit because your Volvo can fit anywhere. If it's a very tiny garage, like a toy house, obviously it's not going to fit either. So you have to have the right garage and the right car, yeah. right? So that's what structure-based virtual screening does. In this case, and in this particular paper, we did what's called ligand-based virtual screen. We started with chloroquine because at the time we considered chloroquine to be a good starting point because it had uh, activity in vitro, so there is a particular assay called the cytopathic effect. This assay, what it usually does, uh, there is a particular cell line called VeroE6, and you infect the VeroE6 with a live virus, uh, in this case, the SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. And then you see whether this drug can protect the cells from dying because they are killed by the virus. Yeah. And so hydroxychloroquine does have that effect that uh, against viral E6, uh, it protects them from this cytopathic effect uh, at a pretty good uh, uh, bioactivity. It has a pretty good bioactivity. What we discussed in the paper, uh, after multiple iterations, and this was key in our publication, we did not rush to publish. This was not a preprint. What we did was we found some observations uh, and experimentally we identified some drugs, which include the anti-malarial amodiaquine, uh, a anti-blood, how should I say, a drug that measures, that protects against high blood pressure. This one is called Mebivolol. And last but not least, an uh, antipsychotic called Zuclopentixol. Yeah. And these three drugs, 
we found them at the University of New Mexico uh, in the lab of Stephen Bradfield. Uh, they were found to be active uh, against uh, the virus in this uh, cytopathic uh, effect assay. So what we then did, uh, we purchased these drugs from another vendor, so a chemical vendor, you know, you can buy um, these uh, chemicals just as you were be able to buy a car just from different uh, uh, car dealers. So we bought from a different chemical uh, manufacturer and we sent them to the University of Tennessee in the lab of Colleen Johnson, where uh, she did different experiments, but they all came to the same conclusion. These three drugs are active, but what's equally important uh, at the University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center, Colleen also performed a different uh, experiment, which is called a viral titration assay. In the viral titration assay, what you do is you progress, progressively expose the cells to a different load of virus. Yeah. And so you pretty much try to ask the question, how well does the drug protect uh, against the virus? Mm. And it turns out that this drug called remdesivir, which everybody uses, and it's the only FDA-approved drug specifically for uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, is very active, but equally active is this amodiaquine, which is an antimalarial drug. However, hydroxychloroquine has no activity. <laughs> so, so the idea here is to get existing drugs and existing, existing drugs activities, perhaps their mechanism of action, and, and come up with a combination of them. How, how exactly would you ultimately create something yeah, that might be useful for COVID-19. Uh, that's right. The, the thought is first to identify drugs that have some activity, in this case, uh, nebivolol or uh, amodiaquine. And then the question is, can we combine yeah. them? Uh, and we haven't yet finalized that work. And part of the reason we haven't uh, completed that, we, we sort of expected that by this time, uh, like mid-December, we, we should be, uh, com had completed that work. Uh, turns out that uh, five of the lab members from Colleen Johnson's lab uh, had tested positive for COVID-19 uh, due to, this is not infection at work, this is literally uh, society type uh, interactions. So uh, parents or, or contacts in, in their immediate uh, uh, contact network had been, uh, had tested positive. So. We, we pretty much had to slow down the work. Uh, they are now back in the lab. They hope to restart uh, the experiments soon. So I really wish them good health and, you know, I, I hope they can get on with work. It is very important what they do, of course. Yeah, so, um, so, so you are actually using some of the data that we talked about before, um, both the, the Pharos type data, but more importantly, perhaps the drug central uh, type. Correct. And, um, and, and so you have another paper, um, it, it's entitled Artificial Intelligence Drug Repurposing and Peer Review. And they're, you know, kind of interesting things. So um, you could apply machine learning techniques to, uh, to sort of custom design something uh, because you could predict potentially, uh, because you have some understanding of the toxicology, uh, toxic effects of existing drugs and their structure. And uh, perhaps that allows you to 
uh, to assign some probability what a new uh, combination, um, you know, what type of toxic effects a new combination might have? Is that the idea? So the paper that you particularly mentioned, um, it's a commentary in Nature Biotechnology, and this was uh, spearheaded by uh, Jeremy Levin, who uh, is head of Ovid Therapeutics, which is a New York-based company, as well as Alex Javronkov, um, who heads a company called In Silico Medicine, uh, which is um, an artificial intelligence-based uh, company. And uh, essentially what we tried to state in this commentary, and we also recruited uh, assistance uh, and uh, insight from additional uh, folks, including uh, AI-based companies in Israel and in France, uh, particularly Spark Beyond and Aukin. Uh, so Sagi Davidovich and Thomas Klozel are, are the people I'm having in mind. And what we try to address in, in this paper is the question, can we deal with the deluge of information that comes to us via preprints and uh, peer-reviewed publications and uh, TV channels and Twitter, uh, which all claim to have solved the problem of uh, COVID-19 and they have found the cure. And uh, alas, we know that that's not the case. Uh, just because somebody publishes on Twitter doesn't uh, constitute uh, scientific uh, uh, results. <laughs> So yeah. what we try to do is uh, point out that we really need to be more aggressive in trying to call out uh, uh, fake science for what it is. So the paper starts with uh, the sad situation uh, caused by Andrew Wakefield and colleagues who published in 1998 a paper that linked vaccines to autism. Mm -hmm. This unfortunately has started uh, a movement uh, called uh, the anti-vaxxers. Right. Uh, that paper has been retracted, but it took uh, the Lancet uh, 12 years to retract that mm. paper. So at the time, uh, we were literally concerned that, uh, uh, for example, with hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, we saw a very aggressive behavior from uh, the White House and uh, others in, in France, for example, uh, they were uh, stating that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine can uh, uh, block the infection. That is not the case. Uh, I think uh, everyone can relax on that. Scientific evidence points to the contrary. But at the time, we were concerned that if this uh, does continue unchecked, it, it ends up uh, in people taking uh, the wrong medication for the wrong disease. Uh, because to be clear, hydroxychloroquine does have its role in uh, autoimmune diseases and in malaria. It's just it shouldn't be used uh, in in COVID nineteen. Yeah, so this is an important um, important point. Um, so, so the pandemic actually taught us that uh, if you, if you are not prepared for it, it's going to take some time uh, before medications or vaccines going to be developed. And if it's a worldwide pandemic, um, th there is going to be a lot of misinformation. You, you mentioned here, according to a recent analysis, an average of 367 COVID-19 papers are being published every week uh, with a medium, uh, median time for submission to acceptance of just six days. And so, so that is uh, potentially <laughs> uh, a prescription for disaster. Um, 
and so 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 do you uh, do you foresee you know some sort of an ai driven system in place to either complement or or dis or, or potentially change the peer review process uh yes that's pretty much what we're hoping is that um given appropriate uh, uh, funding such a system can be developed and uh of course it, it would be impossible for an ai based system to read uh, 300 papers and decide which paper is right and which paper is wrong what this uh, artificial intelligence system could do is identify conflicting information that would be automatically flagged for further human intervention and we would also identify things that by imputation by uh, inference would be in line with previous observations based on the existing corpus of biomedical literature so an ai based system would have the ability to not only distill all of pubmed which is uh, 30 million publications at the abstract level as well as of course the 4 or 5 million that have full text mm -hmm. but could also look at uh, the patent corpus or the clinicaltrials.gov um, data and then ask the question what people claim in this new publication could that publication be in line or against the current consensus in based on this uh, text corpora and of course if there is a, a consensus and this paper is in agreement it just extrapolates by a little bit then it's one way to flag for peer review if it would say this totally contradicts what we currently know then it would indicate that either there has to be very solid evidence and uh, multiple confirmations that this is the case or perhaps this paper is just plain wrong yeah i mean it is a bit um, analogous to fact checking the politicians um uh tutor so so you know what what you are if i understand this correctly you have a compendium of historical information drugcenter.org clinicaltrials.gov and any new paper um could be analyzed in the context of that compendium of information and if there is some sort of an ai process running it could at least assign a probability that the conclusions of that paper uh, are likely to be correct and uh, at the very least it will it will uh, classify um the output into buckets um and so especially in a situation that you need fast information to solve a, you know something that is really accelerating it, it would at least focus uh, both the scientists and the policy makers into into a, a, a subset that is more likely that's correct so what we're hoping to accomplish in the next 2 uh, to 5 years is uh, to develop a system that would um, pretty much assist the peer review process with um, a set of predefined rules which would then help triage the papers into likely to be true or unlikely to be true or um, somehow measure the element of surprise that is brought by the paper and when might been by surprises of course not in line with what was previously known mm -hmm. uh, 
Again, I will emphasize that mathematics, unfortunately, does not help detect truth, truth from falsehood. That's just currently not possible as far as I know. But when it comes to biomedical uh, literature, at least we can reasonably state this is in line or this is not in line with what was previously thought to be true. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the issue with biomedical research is that um, there's a lot of uncertainty involved. And so it is not really a, a deterministic, you know, sort of mathematical process. Um, on the other hand, it also creates problems for humans, right? So, you know, one could argue um, peer review uh, could go into confirmation and confirmation biases. And so uh, humans are not unbiased entity either. Um, and so... That, that is correct. Um, we, we all know of uh, cases where uh, groundbreaking work that eventually got the Nobel Prize was rejected, rejected, rejected for years because it didn't fit with the uh, existing dogma. At the same time, we should also be aware of uh, retraction watch, uh, where people simply fake the information that gets into the papers. And then the other one that I don't even know where to categorize are the paper mills, which is a new phenomenon where um, papers that appear to be true are pretty much invented out of thin air. Um, and they all fit a certain pattern. Um, hopefully, uh, you should invite someone to talk about it uh, to your audience. But uh, uh, such phenomena exist. and. Uh, what we're hoping is that over time we will accumulate enough evidence to detect them. Unfortunately, as you identify the elements that detect them, the people who create these fake papers also get smarter and will find ways to beat the system. So I'm, I'm sure this will be a cat and mouse game for a while. Yeah, that, that is a, that's a good point, Tudor. You know, um, there are technologies that are coming uh, or already available, uh, GPT-2, GPT-3. Uh, and these technologies are very highly sophisticated. So given raw materials, uh, perhaps existing papers, uh, the technology could write a scientific paper uh, that that could be read, um, you know, uh, it, it, to be very good, actually. So to, to find fault with it requires a lot of effort. And so... Um, it, it certainly does. There's a lot of detective work involved. Yeah, yeah. So this is probably what you mean by paper mills. And that problem is going to only increase now and only get more sophisticated. And so the question remains, yeah, like you say, a cat and mouse game, um, both the volume and the sophistication of uh, information is going to increase and, and to parse uh, what might be useful and what might be just uh, either useless or, or just, a, just a framing, uh, I, I think it's a major problem. Um, and I don't know, I don't know who would take the responsibility for this, Tudor. You know, if you think about it from a policy perspective, is it social media, organized like NIH? Who, who would be ultimately responsible for implementing something like that? 
So to, to some extent, of course, NIH has become well aware of this. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, Francis Collins um, addresses in one of his commentaries the issue of uh, reproducibility, which is pretty much the crux of the issue here. Uh, and then there are the so-called uh, data forensics detectives uh, who examine publications and uh, try to come up uh, with uh, uh, the possibility that that somebody has uh, pretty much taken information and and faked it uh, like uh, images yeah they they process images with uh, photoshop something like that right. so uh, the the name that comes to mind is uh, elizabeth pick and uh, she does a lot of work in um, scientific integrity. And speaking of scientific integrity, a shout out to Anita Bandrovsky and uh, her work, uh, uh, the so-called SciScore. So there is a company that uh, initially this work was uh, funded by NIH, uh, NIMH, they, they funded this work. Uh, so if you go to SciScore.com, you will find something called the Rigor and Transparency Index, which uh, is um, an effort to try to evaluate transparency and rigorosity of uh, publications. So I think over time, if SciScore really takes off, we will be able to evaluate the degree of confidence in publications over time. Yeah, so, so Tudor, in conclusion, if you look forward five years, um, where do you think we will be? Are there a lot of data being generated. Uh, you and others are, are trying to trying to aggregate um, and analyze pre-process stage that information. AI techniques are improving. Uh, where do you think we will be five years from now in the the general area of drug discovery and repositioning? In the drug repositioning component, I think um, in silico technologies that are really rapidly developing, uh, I, I think uh, it's sort of a, I, I don't like to use cliches, but it's almost a no-brainer given the pandemic that we really need to invest a lot in smart uh, automated uh, technologies, perhaps robotics-based science to, to be able to conduct experiments without people being present. I think that's really up and coming. So there will be uh, robotic labs that will carry out, say, antiviral research while, while the people are you know, working from home because of lockdown orders. So I think that's entirely within uh, the possibilities of what's coming in the next five to 10 years. Uh, on the drug repurposing side, uh, the more we understand the way drugs work, the more likely it is that we'll be able to identify novel clinical uses for existing drugs. And that's really the crux of drug repurposing. And when it comes to artificial intelligence uh, assisting scientists, uh, I also fear that uh, we humans will simply not be able to read the millions of publications. And uh, I'm not just thinking about uh, the publications related to COVID, but say you're a neuroscientist interested in Alzheimer's disease. Um, I don't think there's anyone out there currently being capable to read and comprehend 
all the publications that are coming. And we're not talking about the papers that are fake. Uh, we're talking about legitimate papers. Mm. The number of papers that are published in each area is, is dauntingly increasing. So what I expect to happen is that there will be either phone-based apps or some sort of system that's uh, rooted in uh, something similar to what Google is uh, developing with Google Patents and uh, Google Scholar, which will then be able to take a subset of these publications and distill them into a resume or a summary of those publications and feed them to you as a scientist. So you will pretty much have what currently in science is known as reviews, mm. uh, but generated by a machine. So I also think that's up and coming. Yeah, it's, it's exciting times. It's almost like it's a necessary condition for us to internalize uh, information that is exponentially increasing. So, uh, so yeah, we need, to, we need to get smarter in getting smart. <laughs> That's what I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. This has been great, Tudor. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you for inviting me, Jill. Thank you. Bye. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.